Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. It's been 10 years since California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed that state's pioneering climate law, AB 32. When we sign this bill, we will begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that will change the course of history. A decade later, how are we doing? Our economy has gotten bigger and emissions have gone down and we're on track to meet our 2020 targets. California also recently announced plans to close its last remaining nuclear power plant. But will that ultimately reduce or increase carbon pollution? We continue to believe that the path forward for reducing our carbon emissions is to really increase how much renewables we have as well as energy efficiency. The future of oil and nuclear power, up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Ten years ago, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signed into law a pioneering climate bill to reduce carbon pollution across the state's economy. That law, known as AB 32, is arguably the most important piece of climate legislation in the country. And it put California at the forefront of the global move to protect the climate that supports our economy and lifestyles. But does it also risk putting California at a competitive disadvantage? On today's program, we explore the impact of AB 32 and other climate laws on the price of gasoline, electricity, jobs, innovation, and our way of life. How can densely populated states like California lead the fight against climate disruption without disrupting their economic vitality? Joining Greg today are three people with leading roles in the debate over finding that balance. State Senator Fran Pavley co-authored AB 32 and other laws regulating fracking and tailpipe emissions. Before her recent retirement, she led the successful effort to extend much of California's main climate law for another 10 years. Kathy Reheis-Boyd is president of the Western States Petroleum Association, which represents the oil industry in Arizona, California, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington. And Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board, the main state agency for regulating air quality and carbon pollution. He's a transportation expert and founding director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Davis. Here's Greg taking the temperature on California's climate law. I want to go back to 10 years ago on Treasure Island, where Governor Schwarzenegger signed AB 32, this California's main climate law. Let's hear what he had to say then. In a few minutes, we will be signing Assembly Bill 32. When we sign this bill, we will begin a bold new era of environmental protection here in California that will change the course of history. In fact, we will create a whole new industry that will pump up our economy. Kathy Rehouse Boyd, a new law, pump up the economy. Ten years later, what's been the impact? So, I mean, the way you've actually framed this conversation, and I'm really happy to be here, Greg, with Senator Pavley and Dr. Sperling. We've been actually doing this since 2006 together, so it's, it has been a while of uh, working together on this very important issue. And the way you pose the question is, you know, has it been helpful or hurtful? And frankly, I think it's been both. On the helpful side, I think it really has set a conversation for California that's a very important one, not only in the context of what we can do, but you know how that relates to things like the Paris Agreement and things that, that the international community is looking at. But also, as we look at the positive side of it, we also have to find a way to minimize as much as we can the cost of the program, such that businesses and consumers can still you know have the quality of life that they have as we're trying to to move forward so i sort of i sort of have yes on both sides of that question done some good done some bad senator padley uh this is your baby uh but ab32 uh 10 years in what's what's the scorecard well as a former teacher i suppose i would give it uh, 
an A minus, <laughs> <laughs> but with a lot more work to be done, obviously, because this is going to take decades to get this right. Um, sometimes I look back and I, I think about what Governor Schwarzenegger said in his, uh, oftentimes in his speeches, he would say, well, we don't have to choose between a clean environment and a strong economy. We can have both. And we can look at the math, what's happened since AB 32 passed back in 2006. Our economy has gotten bigger and emissions have gone down and we're on track to meet our 2020 targets. And some of the very popular programs that I know the public's been increasingly aware of and very supportive of are issues such as energy efficiency and buildings and appliances where you save money on utility bill plus reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We've done uh, tremendous good work on cars. In fact, everyone's benefiting from greater fuel efficiency of cars. And it's now a national policy. It started as a state policy, so we're not going it alone on all these policies, where by 2026 we'll average 54.6 miles per gallon, saving people money at the pump and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So my involvement in all this is making sure, to the maximum extent possible, we have a win-win-win, uh, reducing climate pollution, um, cleaning up the air because of the contributing factor in health impacts, um, and also creating in-state jobs. And so uh, it's going to take a lot of work by a lot of good people, a lot of innovation. So I welcome this conversation as well. Thank you, Senator Pavley. Uh, Dan uh, Sperling, she gives it an A minus. Has it really helped or hurt the economy, or is it a mixed bag, as Cassie Reheis Boyd said? Well, it's so new. So there's some pieces of it that have been here a little longer, like the vehicle standards. But most of it, cap and trade, low carbon fuel standard, they're just barely getting started. And perhaps the one that's, other one that's had an effect is the renewable portfolio standard requiring renewable energy for the electric utilities. But for the most part, we're just getting started. And I, I think the bigger question is, we have to do a lot. We have to do something. The science is overwhelming. Climate change is a huge risk to the earth, to California. And the question is, how do we move forward aggressively? And as Kathy said, we want to do it smart. And as Fran said, there's lots of things, low-hanging fruit, like vehicle efficiency. We should have been doing that even if there was no climate change problem, no oil problem, it costs about, for, to get that 50 miles per gallon, it'll cost us a little over $1,000 extra, but we get each consumer will get back at least three or $4,000 extra for themselves. So forget about climate and air pollution, everything else, just on pure economics for the individual, it's something really good. Kathy Rehars, boy, let's talk about there. Uh, there is growing uh, in corporate America, growing recognition of, of climate change. Dan Sperling just mentioned energy efficiency for automobiles. That reduces the demand for gasoline. Is that a good thing? Is that something that WISPA, the Western <laughs> states oil companies support, or is that something that you resist? Well, I mean, we, we've always supported energy efficiency in, in all of its forms. So and we've also always supported diversification. I mean, it's never good to have all of your eggs in one basket. I mean, none of us do that even in our stock portfolios, right? So um, I do think that it, it is a time where we have to look at all sources of energy as we go down this path together. And the one thing that I just get a little concerned about is that, you know, in California, the leadership position that it has taken is a very important one. But we have to remember we're still only less than 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So what we do matters from a leadership standpoint, but we have to make sure that we don't take such economic burden on ourselves that all we do is put our state at a competitive disadvantage unless other people are going to follow us. So it gets really important that whatever signals we're sending to the rest of the world is because that's really important for the signal to the rest of the world. And, and we can lead, but if we, we have to have people follow us because this is a global pollutant, right? It, it does matter where emissions come from and how we address it collectively in the globe. It's a planet issue. It's not an in-your-backyard direct health issue. 
Senator Padley, when this was first envisioned 10 years ago, there were a number of Western states that were going to join California mm -hmm. and kind of the idea is that California can't price itself out. Otherwise, businesses will go to Nevada or Oregon, lower Utah, lower cost states. A lot of those states rolled off after elections are no longer standing with California. Isn't it real that there is a risk that California can put itself at an economic disadvantage by pricing energy too high? Well, we always have to be careful and we always look at... Um uh, any kind of leakage, that means, in simple terms, there's no point in having a um, carbon-polluting industry just move across state lines for whatever reason, because it still affects the planet. But what's really been happening here, sort of behind the scenes, even though what you said was correct, is states are working together. For example, Oregon and Washington and British Columbia have joined us with putting in uh, EV infrastructure for electric cars throughout our state. I just got back from Mexico City. Amazing. The National Senate down there just unanimously passed the Paris Accord Agreement. The president of Mexico, who I met with for an hour, over an hour at the National Palace, he and the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada have all agreed to adopt California's now the national standard of more fuel-efficient cars. Those will all be across all three countries. Uh, Governor Brown has been very involved in other states. We call them subnational states, provinces, others all adopting similar policies. We have an alternative fuel company that was so excited about SB 32 passing that uh, because of the market signal that's being sent, that they're investing in new people, and they've taken over an old oil refinery. They have a long-term contract with United Airlines on biofuels. There's a lot of excitement in moving forward on all these technologies. I know we can do this. Dan Sperling, biofuels were all the rage a few years ago, and they haven't really, they've been kind of disappointing, actually. Uh, they, they haven't come through. Some of the companies that started uh, making alternative fuels are now making makeup because they can make more money at lower volumes. So, uh, you know, tell us about the prospect for cellulosic biofuels that can go in existing pumps, existing tanks. They've been kind of a disappointment. You know, before I answer that, let me back up just a second because I want to talk about what California is doing, California's leadership. Fran mentioned that California is not an island, and the climate problem is a global problem. So what we do in terms of actual emission reductions in California has a small effect. But what we do in terms of policy innovation, what we do in terms of creating the industries and the innovation really is global. And we are creating the platform in California for economic growth and leadership by nurturing those technologies, encouraging, you know, solar technologies, the batteries, the vehicles, you know, the Teslas. Uh, and so we are positioning us, ourselves for the future, which, you know, is going to be very different. And we're going to be ready for it more than a lot of places. Now, the biofuel is a big challenge. And there's a lot of things that have happened faster than we expected, including the battery, has improved much faster than any of the experts thought, any of the companies thought. The biofuels has been just the opposite, is that we thought the cellulosic biofuels, the biofuels made out of wood and grasses, um, we thought we'd have it by now. The federal government adopted a requirement for 15 billion gallons of it by 2022. Not going to happen. And I think mistakes were made. Not enough was invested in developing the right plants that would be used in terms of processing it. There was a lot of hubris that we knew more than we knew, and we had some venture capitalists and some others that were overselling it, hyping it. And so now I think we're in a little retrenchment, and I think we're looking at it differently now. Now we're looking at, okay, we got this big corn ethanol industry, and you can think what you want of it, but they are bringing some innovation into it. They are getting more efficient. They're pulling the corn oil out of it to use as a diesel fuel. They're starting to take some of the corn cobs, and, which is cellulose, and processing it. So they're making, it's kind of an incremental path. But I think what we really need now is the oil industry to get engaged. The oil industry is the only one with the resources, the capabilities 
to really scale it up, to make the investments that are needed, uh, because otherwise it's not going to happen fast. We're taking the temperature on California's climate law at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about AB 32, California's pioneering climate law, with Dan Sperling, founding director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Davis, Kathy Reheis-Boyd, president of the Western States Petroleum Association, and Fran Pavley, who co-authored the climate law and was preparing to retire from the California State Senate when this program was recorded. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask a series of yes or no quick association questions of our guests. Yes or no, Dan Sperling, electric vehicles will save the bacon of electric utilities otherwise caught in a death spiral. No, <laughs> they will be successful, but they will not for the... <laughs> they no. won't save the utilities. <laughs> Kathy Reheis Boyd, you are happy Senator Pavley is termed out of office. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Friend Pavley, oil companies extract fuel from the age of dinosaurs, and if they don't adapt quickly, some of them may become dinosaurs themselves. True. Kathy Reheis Boyd, Tesla's Gigafactory for car batteries gives you heartburn. No. <laughs> Fran Pavley, uh, it was a mistake for Climate One to host a conversation about California's climate action with four white people and no person of color. No. Some people on Twitter thought so. Uh, Dan Sperling, <laughs> oil companies have borrowed the tobacco company playbook. The main plays in that book are deny, delay, and generate doubt. Largely, yes. <laughs> Kathy Reheis Boyd, white people in California breathe cleaner air near their homes than people of color. Could be true. Dan Sperling, when it comes to fighting public interest in cleaner fuels, Chevron is the new Exxon. Well, that implies a lot of things. Um, <laughs> Chevron has not been supportive of biofuels. Senator Pavley, despite California's move to clean fuels, oil companies are more powerful in the state legislature than 15 years ago. Yes, true. Uh, we are going to change this a little bit, and just I'm going to mention a, a word or phrase, and you tell me what first pops into your mind. No filtering. This is kind of fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kathy Reheis, boy, the new Chevy Bolt with a BEV with a 200-mile range and a $35,000 price tag. Interesting. <laughs> Fran Pavley, hamburgers. Less beef. Dan Sperling, high-speed rail. Hopeful solution. <laughs> Kathy Reheis Boyd, Volkswagen diesels. Like them. Governor Jerry Brown for Kathy Reheis Boyd. Pragmatic. Also, last one for Kathy, not last one, but another one for Kathy. California's new law regulating cow burps and other super pollutants. Tough. Dan Sperling, the American Petroleum Institute. Slowing things down. <laughs> also for Dan Sperling, Fran Pavley's legislative legacy. Brilliant and long-lasting. Fran Pavley, fracking. It'll be phased out. Also Fran Pavley, uh -oh. retirement. Looking forward. Hyphenated, <laughs> <laughs> right? And last one for Kathy Reheis Boyd, the Republican Party. In transition. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's the end. How they do? Let's give them a round for getting through that. Um. Dan Sperling, tell us about Paris. Uh, you said earlier that California's leadership was significant. So Paris is this big deal. All the countries are on board for doing it. How does California matter there? As Kathy Reheis Boyd said earlier, we're only one percent of the problem. Less than. I, hope, I, I was hoping you were doing it part of the previous. I was going to say great wine, good <laughs> cheese. <laughs> oh, Paris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, more serious. Um, well, I think California's played a huge role as a leader in influencing Washington, what happens in Washington, never mind elsewhere. You know, like I personally, I work with China on a zero-emission vehicle, on their development of a zero-emission vehicle mandate for China. So we from California are having a lot of influence around the world, and we give, I mean, for a long time, the United States was kind of a laggard in addressing climate change, 
And I think now, you know, thanks in large part to California's role, it's no longer seen that way. And California, you know, when Governor Schwarzenegger and Governor Brown, they go around the world and they speak and they encourage the subnationals, and they're having a, a, a big influence. And Paris represents the nations of the world joining together and saying, we've got a big problem. We've got to do something about it. And we used to hear all these stories about, well, we'll be disadvantaged relative to China. But everyone's on board. China you know, is investing more in renewable energy and is investing more in electric vehicles than we are. So, I mean, I, I don't buy the argument anymore that you know, worrying about being disadvantaged. There's so many parts of the world that are moving uh, forward aggressively, more aggressively than we are. And one area that is pushing that is this increasing, well, concern about the carbon budget. There's a certain amount of carbon that we can burn to stay below with a red line the world uh, community has drawn. We're already more than halfway there, I think, at current rates. We burned through that whole budget in about 10 years. Uh, Early last year, we had Angus Gillespie, vice president for CO2 at Shell Oil here at Climate One uh, for a discussion on the future of oil. He had a very interesting point to make on what has been described as a carbon bubble. Let's listen to Angus Gillespie from Shell Oil. So you've heard a lot of talk recently about things like unburnable carbon, the carbon bubble and other things. This is the market, the investors starting to realise how significant a risk climate change can be to their investment stock. Now this is a type of thing that starts to get real action because once senior executives see the impact on the stock price, then you know, real activity, long-term activity really starts to take traction. That's Angus Gillespie from Shell Oil. Kathy Rehice Boyd, that's an oil executive saying that they're concerned about these 30-year investments they're making, that they may not get their money back. They have to write down those investments if there's a price on carbon or the economics are changing. Well, and I think one of the things that I'm very interested in hearing about from uh, Senator Pavley and Dr. Sperling is this issue of how do you price carbon? I'm in an interesting position with my companies that I represent that have different views on market mechanisms. And as you know, we have two. We have a cap-and-trade program, which is a market mechanism, and we have a carbon tax, which is a market mechanism. And for the audience, the only difference is is in cap-and-trade, you certainly know the emission reductions you're going to make, but you're not as certain about the price. On carbon tax, you know the price, but you're not as certain on the reductions you made. But they're both driven by the market. And I'm very curious um, where the conversation is going to go on cap-and-trade versus a carbon tax because look it up in Washington state. I mean, we have an initiative, 732, on the ballot right now. That is a carbon tax. So you've got all these different things sort of swirling around on on what is the right answer. I know the Air Resources Board certainly looked at a carbon tax early on. Um, So I'm just sort of curious if I couldn't just get their views on that versus cap-and-trade. I'm just... Senator Pavley, by trying to figure it out. <laughs> California's chosen cap and trade. Some uh, Secretary Schultz, some Republicans support a, uh, a carbon tax. There's some rumors that a carbon fee may be introduced in a new Congress by Republicans. Your take on how that would affect California? Well, it's been a fascinating discussion, and I think we all agree you have to put a price on carbon, and that's uh, what we're doing, whether it's cap and trade. Here's where I have an issue with the carbon tax. It really is not a very progressive tax. It really disadvantages, you know, lower-income people. It does send a price signal, but let's look at this. Right now, if oil companies are polluting, they're buying allowances, and we're using it to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that we can quantify those reductions. A carbon tax, they're not paying a thing. You're paying it at the pump when you refill your car. It's the public that's paying it. So when we had this discussion a few years ago, Daryl Steinberg had authored a bill. It was supported by the oil companies. They want to shift it over there. So it does have a price signal. Some people prefer that. I think uh, national policy, we should all um, get behind whichever direction that they so choose. Uh, But you need a combination of incentives and investments in order to reduce carbon emissions. I'm not sure carbon tax by itself is going to get the job done because of the cost shifting. It's not going to the polluter, per se, unless there's a way to do that. It's going to the end user. 
You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking with Fran Pavley, recently retired California state senator and co-author of AB32. Kathy Reheis-Void, president of the Western States Petroleum Association. And Dan Sperling, founding director of the Institute for Transportation Studies at UC Davis. We'd like to know what you think about California's climate laws. Our email is climateone at commonwealthclub.org. Or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. We turn now to a conversation about the future of nuclear energy in the fight against climate disruption. California's energy utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, recently announced plans to close the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, the last remaining nuclear plant in the state, and to replace its electricity with renewable solar and wind power. But some argue that nuclear is key to a clean energy future, and that the push to phase it out is the result of misinformation and fear-mongering. In this part of the program, we'll ask how nuclear power fits into the push for clean energy, and whether the closing of Diablo Canyon and other nuclear plants ultimately reduces or increases carbon pollution. Joining Greg are four guests with differing views on nuclear power in the age of climate disruption. David Baker is a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, where he covers Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, which is one of the greenest electric utilities in the country. John Giesman is former executive director of the California Energy Commission. He's a legal advisor to the Alliance for Nuclear Responsibility, an anti-atomic group that supports PG&E's plan to close Diablo Canyon. Diane Grunick is a former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission and is now a senior research scholar at the Precourt Institute for Energy at Stanford. And Michael Schellenberger is president of Environmental Progress, a pro-nuclear advocacy group. Here's our conversation about the end of the age of atomic energy in California. David Baker, let's begin with you. Uh, set the context uh, in terms of powering the California economy. How big a deal is this, shutting down Diablo Canyon, which is 20% of PG&E's power? Yeah, it's, it's quite a big deal, um, not just in terms of PG&E, but in the entire state. The state had, up until a couple of years ago, two nuclear power plants running. And then in 2012, one of them closed down because it had a little bit of radioactive steam that leaked out of a particular part. And it turned out that the plant had just spent a whole lot of money on new equipment that was badly designed or just not working properly. And rather than go through the whole process of trying to keep it open and relicensing and all that, its owners decided to close it down. So that left us with just one plant, Diablo Canyon. And to give you a sense of how big the plant is in terms of its importance to the state, last year it was 9%, more than 9%, of all the electricity that was generated within California's borders. So all of that coming out of this one plant. So it was a bit of a bombshell when PG&E announced that. Rather than going for extending the licenses and keeping it open in another 20 years up until 2045, they were going to agree to close it down when its final license expires in 2025. And they say that they can do this and replace as much power from the plant that, as they need to replace with energy efficiency, solar, wind, and some energy storage. Still need to find out exactly how they plan to do that, but they have not quite a decade to do it. So it's, it's a huge change if it happens. I spoke with Bill Mannheim, who's legal counsel for energy supply at PG&E. Uh, he talked about why they're closing Diablo Canyon. Let's hear from Bill Mannheim. The underpinning of PG&E's decision not to relicense Diablo Canyon is really in California's existing green energy policies, which are really visionary. But they are seeking to double energy efficiency by 2030 and increase renewable power to 50% by that time. That displaces the need for much of Diablo Canyon's energy. It's a business decision that was driven by the reality that we no longer need by 2030 the output of Diablo Canyon, and that from a policy perspective and from an economic perspective, it was better to replace the portion that is needed for our customers with energy efficiency and renewables. That's Bill Mannheim from PG&E. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, he said they don't need the power, they're going to replace it. What's your response? Well, I mean, last week we were in New York uh, State where they've just set a new example for how to deal with climate change. New York has um, a huge amount of its power coming from nuclear. It became the first state to recognize nuclear for its climate benefits. So New York is a climate leader. California tries to take credit as a climate leader, but in fact, our emissions have declined slower than the national average. If this proposal goes forward, emissions will go up the equivalent of adding 1.3 million cars to the road. Um, it will be replaced by natural gas. There's literally nothing in the proposal 
that requires that Diablo be replaced by any amount of clean power. In fact, on both of the key elements, it just says, we'll do a bunch of energy efficiency. Now, I think the people in California signed, didn't sign up for that. I think we signed up for clean power, for clean energy that doesn't destroy our beautiful desert landscapes. We didn't sign up for big natural gas leakages, but that's exactly what this proposal would lead to. So I think it's really a testament to how far lost the environmental movement is that so many of these groups have signed off on this deal that would increase methane leaks, increase carbon pollution, make the state incredibly vulnerably dependent on natural gas, including power from out of state. When San Onofre closed, as David Baker was describing, we were 45% natural gas in California. After it closed, we're 61% natural gas. If they succeed with this proposal to close Diablo Canyon, we will become 70% dependent on natural gas. That is a fuel that is just notorious for having huge price spikes. So what we're looking at is a big increase in carbon emissions, big increases in electricity prices, and really, um, I have to say, just the corruption of a basic positive vision that California has had as an environmental and climate leader. John Giesman, you're part of this deal with PG&E. Uh, your response to the, the charge that there's no guarantee in the proposal that it will be renewable power, that it could be natural gas. Does the, does the proposal say what Diablo Canyon electricity has to be replaced it with? It most certainly does, and I don't think Mike has closely read it if he actually feels that way. Uh, there are very clear tranches of new supply that the proposal uh, specifies. Now, I will acknowledge those tranches only address about one-third of the Diablo Canyon output. But the key story here is, and you heard Bill Mannheim say it, PG&E is very uncertain as to what their load will be in 2025, 2026. And I think, I think that's something that all of us ought to ponder pretty carefully. PG&E cannot predict right now what the presence of community choice aggregators will be in its market and what the presence of rooftop solar will be. And they've tried to thwart both. So acknowledging the uncertainty stemming from both of those sources from a business standpoint, I don't think PG&E had much choice. Diane Grunick, let's get you in here. Uh, you've been on the Public Utilities Commission. One of the interesting things here is that, that the state is predicting declining electricity use. There's, there's a shrinking market here, and it seems to be that there's some scramble of what's going on and how to, how to supply that shrinking market. Is that right? Um, let me just say that I find the situation in, heaven forbid, about 40 years involved in energy um, in California about the most interesting one we've ever tackled or been faced with. And part of what's so interesting is that everywhere else that we've dealt with nuclear, it's been a very sudden closing. What David said, you know, you discover that, unfortunately, a whole bunch of parts for a nuclear power plant aren't working. And literally, everybody scrambled, what are we going to do? And that did result in an agreement. 50% of the replacement power would come from natural gas. That, needless to say, had a lot of people upset. But in this situation, we actually have seven years to plan. And that, to me, is what's so extraordinary. The same thing with um, New York. The economics of the market there, the plant operators no longer were making money. And shareholders do not just donate, let's keep a nuclear power plant in operation. So it's a very different situation. Um, and with all of our policies, what we're striving for is a dramatic change in how we're all going to get electricity. Our number one priority in California is energy efficiency. And when I was a commissioner, we, I had the honor of being lead on efficiency. We doubled how much we would all invest in energy efficiency. Last year, our legislature passed a new law that said we're going to double pass that. And so it does mean that overall we use less Energy, And that's bringing up this fascinating situation of a very large power plant like Diablo Canyon that's running just fine, economic. You just may not need that in the future. These very large-scale plants, especially when you have people saying, let's put PV on our homes or let's have them in our communities. And so it's a situation we've never really been faced with before. 
David Baker, what does this tell us about what PG&E and others think about the future of California, what's going to power California's economy, the future of the energy system? We've had some really big plants, uh, billion-dollar plants, and now we have a distributed system, much like computers went from mainframes to, to, to PCs and now phones. We're going to have energy created closer to where it's used. What does this tell us about the future? That's a pretty good way of putting it, actually. Um, it does tell us a couple of things about what, where PG&E and also the people who manage the state's electricity grid think things are going to be 10, 15 years down the road. And it's not necessarily that the amount of electricity we'll use overall will shrink, but it's not going to grow very much. Um, I was visiting this organization based in Folsom, uh, California Independent System Operator. They're the people who actually run the grid. And they are projecting that you look out 10 years from now, and it's basically going to be about the same electricity demand in the state that we have right now, but with a much higher percentage of solar, a bit higher percentage of wind, and a lot of fast-ramping natural gas plants that can move up and down as the rest of the system needs it. A big plant like Diablo, which was designed to go up to full power and just stay there day and night, is kind of a tough fit for all of that. And... PG&E clearly is seeing the same thing because you got to remember, PG&E CEO is a big believer in, in nuclear power. He used to lead the nuclear power industry's main lobbying group in the United States. He is a big believer in, in this technology, and this is a big asset for this company. You know, they own this thing at a time when California forced them and the other utilities to sell most of their power plants years ago. They would not want to give this up if they thought there was a good economic case to be made for keeping it open. But keeping it open isn't free. It's, I think, the operating costs at one point I saw were like $600 million a year or something like that. So if you can't run it full tilt, it's not going to pencil out. Michael Shulver, your response to the, this big nuclear plant don't fit into the future we're going into. I mean, listen, I mean, it's funny, right? Because it's like, I thought we cared about climate change, right? So if you're going to take 9% of our power away why are you going to take it away from a clean energy source? Why not go from 61 to 51% natural gas? Why remove 20% of full one-fifth of our zero-carbon power? The only reason to do it is because you think that there's something really scary or dangerous about nuclear power. But the, the medical journals, the British medical journal Lancet, finds that nuclear is the safest way to generate reliable power. There's been a fear-mongering campaign against this plant, including by John's organization, for almost 40 years that's what's underlying it. And, you know, with all due respect, David, you make it sound like the market is sort of operating without, you know, just sort of on its own. The market is constructed by policies. So what PG&E very clearly said is that if we have to get to 50% renewables, it's very hard to do that if nuclear is not counted as renewables. They went to the legislature and said, we'd like to be able to count nuclear as renewables, and they were denied. They were lobbied against by all the so-called environmental groups, the anti-nuclear groups, that wanted to keep nuclear out of that definition of renewables. So if you care about climate change, there is no excuse to do this other than an underlying paranoia about our largest source of zero-carbon power. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the future of nuclear power in the fight against climate disruption. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Welcome back. Greg Dalton is talking with David Baker, energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, John Giesman, former executive director of the California Energy Commission, Diane Grunick, former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Michael Schellenberger, president of the pro-nuclear advocacy group Environmental Progress. Here's Greg. We're going to go to our lightning round at Climate One. We're talking about nuclear energy and climate change. Uh, these are a series of uh, yes or no questions for our guests, starting with John Giesman. Yes or no, the nuclear energy industry in America is dying a slow death. Yes, uh, Diane Grunick, more people have died working in coal mines than working in nuclear power plants. Yes. Is there My a right or wrong to these? Um, <laughs> Michael, That's accurate. Michael Schellenberger, coal-fired electricity damages public health far more than nuclear power. Oh, it's easy. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> David Baker, the nuclear power industry has a poor record of controlling costs. Yes. Michael Schellenberger, nuclear energy provides a shrinking percentage of global energy supply. Unfortunately, that is true. Diane Grunick, the plan to close Diablo Canyon is not a done deal and could come unhinged. Yes. Also for, <laughs> also for Diane Grunick, oh, <laughs> uh, you get a two for here. Nuclear energy is renewable energy. 
depends, defined by policymakers in this world. In this case, in California, <laughs> no, okay. Uh, John Giesman, uh the only U.S. states building new nuclear power plants today are ones where the utility companies have regulators on a leash, which means they can pass <laughs> huge costs on to customers. They also have your, their hands in your pocket for advanced construction funding. That was um, a yes. That's, there's some plants under construction in Georgia where the ratepayers are already playing for the plants and they're, they're not operating yet. Uh, Diane Grunick, nuclear power plants will continue to be built in Asia and the Middle East. Yes. John Giesman, the United States should continue research into new forms of nuclear power. Yes. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, nuclear waste is the best kind of waste. Yes. <laughs> in terms of electricity production. That means you're willing to carry it out to the curb in your slippers and robe on Sunday morning. Absolutely. Every morning I do that, in fact. Yeah. Whenever uh, I have the chance. David Baker, some liberals oppose nuclear power blindly and ideologically, unencumbered by facts. First clause, yes. Second clause, no. John Giesman, <laughs> that is similar to conservatives who deny climate science blindly and ideologically, unencumbered by facts. Yes. Michael Schellenberger, movies such as The China Syndrome, starring Jack Lemmon and Jane Fonda, and Silkwood, starring Sharon Meryl Streep, did more to shape public perception about nuclear power than most environmental groups. Yeah, I don't think so. David Baker, last question. Small modular reactors, uh, small modular nuclear reactors, are like hydrogen. They are the fuel of the future, and they always will be. Sure seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that ends our lightning round. How do you think they did? I think they did pretty well. Uh, let's talk about the waste. Michael Schellenberger, nuclear waste. This country ha doesn't have a good solution. Yucca Mountain was a political decision to put it in a place where, they, where there's already a nuclear industry. How are we going to solve the waste problem? I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, look, the waste, people, first of all, people don't know what it is. So what gets called waste is the spent fuel, at least the high-level stuff that everyone worries about. It's the, it's the spent fuel. You, most of the energy is still in it because our reactors are not yet where they will be in 100 years or whatever when they can burn all of the energy up. Um, the, the, the waste just sits there. It's in solid form. You ask people what they worry about. They kind of go, oh, my gosh, I'm where it'll be transported, and then it'll fall off the truck, and then green liquid will spill into the river. So, first of all, it's not green, and it's not liquid. It's solid. It's sitting right there on site, and it's fine. If you take all of the waste that nuclear power in the United States has produced since we began producing power from nuclear, um, it would all fit on a football field about 50 or 60 feet high. So there's hardly any of it. As an environmentalist, like, I worry about so many other kinds of waste, like the, all the plastic um, islands of waste in the ocean or, you know, the chemical waste or, or the carbon dioxide waste, the, what we call pollution that we put up into the air. No form of making power better internalizes its waste than nuclear. So there's tiny amounts of it. It's easy to handle and manage. It's just become a kind of bogeyman for people. Diane Grunick, is the waste no big problem? It's fine where it is? Absolutely not. It's a very, very significant concern. And it's actually not just the United States, and this is the thing to really think about. The question that you would ask me, are, is nuclear going to be continued to be built basically outside of the United States? Yes, this is where Asia, this is where India, this is where some of the other areas of the world that politically are very worrisome are getting their power from. And we have not solved the waste problem in 40 years. And it is, Michael was right. It's a political problem. If we got past that, then we could start to focus on can we have the science work? We'd like to see that that happen. But for waste, it's really what's happening outside of the United States where you don't have anywhere near the protections or concerns. And this is where collectively, we've all got to figure out what we're going to do about this. Another concern is cost. David Baker, how much is this going to cost and who's going to pay? We're going to pay. Um, the estimated cost right now is $3.8 to decommission the plant that may go higher. They've increased the estimate a couple of times over the last few years. We have already, all of us in this room, been paying into that fund, uh, though probably most people don't realize it. As soon as a nuclear plant starts up, the people who are its end customers, the utility rate payers, start paying bit by bit into a decommissioning fund. Now, there is a bit of a shortfall between now and 
2025, PG&E wants to raise rates by roughly, or bills, I think, uh, roughly 50 cents per month over the next few years to, to sort of close the gap of what they think it's going to cost. But the total right now, yeah, it's 3.8. Uh, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Um, in the U.S., there are some, from my understanding, there are some nuclear power plants that are still running despite the fact that the safety regulations are outdated. So how can we ensure that if there are nuclear power plants, that our governments and that our safety regulations stay up to date? That is what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission does. It does update them. I mean, you're talking about what is considered one of the best regulatory agencies in the world. I mean, it is staffed by independent regulators. They're overseen by an inspector general. This is, it is, it is not, um, it is, does not report to the president, does not report to Congress. It's bipartisan. I mean, this is the thing about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It is the gold standard of regulation around the world. So very few what you're people, arguing is it's just not the case. Donkey's very head. few people unaffiliated with the nuclear industry feel positively toward the NRC. Virtually everyone else that has had any dealings whatsoever with the NRC consider them, as Barack Obama said in 2008, a captive agency. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Um, this is something that really comes up in Germany. Um, I, don't, I think tying this to California, is the priority in California's policies more renewables or greenhouse gas abatement? It, Thank Renick. That's a great question. It's both. We continue to believe that the um, path forward for reducing our carbon emissions is to really increase how much renewables we have as well as energy efficiency. We still have on the books a law that does not allow us to build new nuclear power plants until we have a um, approved method for disposing of the highly radioactive waste. So if we were to bring on any more nuclear power plant, we would actually have to cha have a change in the law. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, it's worth noting that nuclear power can actually load follow while wind and solar can't. Uh, so if it's a purely economic argument requiring to Diablo Canyon to, to stay online at 100%, and that's the only way that they can make it economically viable, um, what if this could be accomplished with diversions of the energy to non-grid applications? Uh, would that provide reasoning for not closing Diablo, such as production of hydrogen uh, or electrical cars? Or desalination, right? Of course. I mean, if you really cared about climate, you would not be shutting down one-fifth of your clean power. If there's too much solar coming onto the grid, which is what's happening this year, we had to, the, the grid operators had to stop all the solar coming in from the, the farms when we didn't need it. You would be setting up ourselves to go and get hydrogen cars, electric cars. That's not what this proposal does. It takes away a full-fifth of our zero-carbon baseload. Welcome to Climate One. We're talking about nuclear power in Diablo Canyon. Um, a lot of people are asking whether or not they're going to be able to replace all of its power with renewables, but I think that's missing the point. Even if they could do that, that's not acceptable. You know, how is it acceptable to spend all that time, money, and effort, like, like 15 years or so and all this money, just to replace one non-fossil source with another? You know, in, in other words, just to tread water on climate change. These are not the actions of a society or a state that really cares about global warming. Um, okay, let's, we have to wrap let, up. We're actually let me say something John, as, John as an energy planner. There. And I've done that twice in my life, once as an executive director of the Energy Commission in the 70s and later as a member of the Energy Commission when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. And it's real important from the state standpoint to recognize how hard it is to build infrastructure. And a key takeaway from confronting that toughness is find where the path of least resistance lies. Figure out what the public wants and give them some of that. Now, all these community choice aggregation organizations forming, not a single one has organized around the principle of we want more nuclear power in our supply system. Mike, why don't you organize? I would love to. to. That's what that. we're doing. I mean, look, you guys have spent 40 years fear-mongering on completely baseless grounds. So I think it's understandable that people think nuclear power is something that it's not. This is the first time there's been a civil society movement for this technology. It's early days. Our organization is seven months old. So, you know, come and let's talk in 40 years and let's see how we do. I think that on, in the long term, the society bends towards truth and science and away from hysterical fear-mongering. We are out of time. We have to end with one <laughs> quick... quick Question, uh, one quick question for each of you. Um, John Giesman, what are you doing to reduce your own personal carbon footprint? 
I replaced my 297,000-mile Prius that got <laughs> approximately 40 miles a gallon with a new Prius that gets a little more than 62 miles a gallon. It was an emotional process. I was committed to it in the same way that many people are committed to Diablo Canyon. But ultimately, it was just going to take too much money to keep the car up to repair. And you know, I improved its miles per gallon by 50% by making the new investment. Why didn't you buy Pure Electric? And you could run on Diablo Canyon. Doesn't, doesn't fit my driver profile. Okay. David, believe me, I calculated it. Uh, David Baker, your carbon footprint, quickly. Uh, it's mostly about, I'm a, an apartment dweller here in San Francisco, so basically I've switched out all the lights, and I make sure that we don't do anything unnecessary in terms of turning them on. However, I don't control the heat in my building, I don't control pretty much anything other than that, and how much natural gas I use at the stove, so it's, there's not a lot I can do. I do, however, stick with Muni, no matter how many times it has betrayed me. <laughs> <laughs> Diane Grunick. My husband got my Fitbit for Christmas, so I'm uh, doing more walking and less driving. <laughs> Michael Schellenberger. Um, I live in a really old house. I keep it well-maintained, um, highly efficient. I drive a really old car, a really old Honda car that's also very efficient, keep it maintained. But the most important thing I do is I um, defend our largest source of clean power and the technology that is the most important <laughs> environmental technology of this century. <laughs> Greg Dalton has been discussing clean energy and the future of nuclear power with Michael Schellenberger, president of the pro-nuclear advocacy group Environmental Progress, Diane Grunick, former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission, David Baker, energy reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, and John Giesman, former executive director of the California Energy Commission. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Devin Strolovich, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.